Well, welcome to City Church. If you haven't already been welcomed, it is. Thank you, Terence. It's very good if you're joining us. Really a privilege for people to come and gather and worship God together. Well, this week, I uh, actually I got a message this morning from Glenda. And uh, she said, please send special love to City Church. They're missing you, of course. And this week, um, I got very emotional messages from, from Rob and then Glenda this morning saying that they listened to the farewell messages that we all did individually. And because I think the video was something like four hours long, I can't remember, it was very, very long. Uh, they could not listen to it in one sitting, not because it was so long, but they said th the emotions they were experiencing were too deep to listen to too much. So it took them a long time to go through the messages. They were just so overwhelmed by God's goodness and by love and affection from you. So I just want to just commend you guys for blessing Rob and Glenda in that little way because it meant so much to them. So they're missing you and they love you. So send them a little message afterwards and say, Glenda, Rob, uh, we're missing you. We love you. I want to invite two very special people this morning. Uh, I, last week, they were talking to me just impromptu, and they said that they had some revelation and that God had connected with them in such a real way. And in the moment, just out of inspiration, I said, please, would you share that this morning? So I'm not sure if they're going to be three minutes or 30 minutes. So buckle up, get ready. <laughs> and uh, just uh, as we welcome Carmen up, please give her a round of applause and make her feel safe. Yeah, I think uh, just when I was just worshiping that line, you know, there's like just reach out and receive. Wow. That was like, that's it. Just reach out and receive. So, yeah, Sha was saying last week, um, we just had a little discussion. Um, you know, when you listen to a sermon, like you're listening, but then you go home, you're like, I don't really remember uh, most of it, but there's just that one. <laughs> Sean, I didn't. <laughs> but there's just that one one line or one revelation as that just just gets gets you right, and you take home and you're like, just you're just you can't stop thinking about it. So I went home that night and I just started just reflecting on that, that line. And what Sean said last week was like, God doesn't respond to your faith. And I'm like, either that can be so controversial, I think, as a, someone who's grown up in the church, or for me, when I went home or when I was having a discussion, it was like, it was like God just gave me this key and unlocked something in my heart. Um, God, like, I had to go home and like, like keep like, thinking about it like God doesn't respond to my faith like what do you mean <laughs> like that's are you sure that like, I grew up in the church like you know as a young age my parents were non-believers but you know but when we went to immigrated to Canada actually uh, like uh, when, I was, when I was six like uh, I went to church so I grew up in the church environment everything was about faith like you need faith like what do you mean like God responds to my faith I grew up doing that, right? I gave him all my faith. I, I, I serve, like, I had to keep my righteousness through faith. And so I grew up in the church, and, and at a young age, I was put in an environment where I was just, it was quite performance-oriented, I would say. And I didn't know that at the time. Like, I was asked to be on stage and sing, you know, do that, or I was asked to volunteer and serve 
when I was a teen, and then growing up, even all through university, and even all through, as an adult even, like my whole life was about ministry, about, about serving, and about giving God. For me, that, I acquainted that with my faith. Yep. You know, like if I did more, God is going to do more. Or, or like, as if like, if I didn't do anything, God was going to stop stop working <laughs> like like that was the mentality i grew up with so to me like that was faith was just me like doing and then god responding to me and but then like as i i think it's really it's these two years like you know i started really like understanding faith and even grace and righteousness like something is starting to unlock in my heart and even in in my mind and even in my relationship with god like started to shift. Um, so I just have to remember. <laughs> Sometimes when I start talking, I don't remember. <laughs> but I think, I think that the key that, I re- that really started to unlock was um, when the shift wasn't, isn't about God isn't responding to my faith. Like, but it's how I'm just, he's inviting us to respond to him. You know, like my relationship with him has changed since then. It, it wasn't about me working hard to, to ask God to change who he already is. <laughs> you know, because one thought he gave me while I was reflecting was, I was, he was inviting me, and I thought this is an invitation that I want to invite us all to think about this morning. He said, Carmen, think about that first yes you said to God. That first yes to, your first yes you respond to, to God when he took that initiative. And I thought about, yeah, that was when I was, I think, seven. I went to a Christian school. And I was just sitting, I still remember the picture. I was sitting in this circle with all the different kids. And the teacher in front, they're like, do you want to believe in Jesus? <laughs> you know? Like, at that time, like, I had, really, to be honest, like, I was six. Did I really know what faith was? <laughs> like, or, or, but, like, when I heard, I'm like, I was like, I remember that, yes, but yes, you know, like, along with other children there, we're like, yes, I want this, and then God was reminding me, like, that was it, that was it, that was the faith, (laughs) that was faith, that was faith that, yes, that he didn't require me to, to even understand fully what faith was, and I was only six, and now I'm, what, well, I won't share my age, but, <laughs> but, but, but may, oh, maybe like many years, many years later, like it was like until now, like I get that unlock. But it wasn't because like I wasn't worthy or like God didn't want to show it to me. But he, it was just this process he took me to, you know, and took me to so that I would continue to understand the death and his, his love for me. Because, you know, in those how many years, you know, I've, I've failed. I've done some things that I was like, I couldn't even forgive myself at times. Like, I went through some pretty uh, maybe immoral or, or things, you know, we've all, you know, we've been there. And it was in those times where God was like, he's still here with me. You know, like, he didn't say you, you, you failed, you made a mistake. I'm just going to you know, abandon you now. So I think the point he was telling me is like, the, that first yes of who he is, he hasn't changed. Sometimes I think as Christian, or maybe I thought like, like now that I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, like 
God is some, God is like another God now to us believers. You know, we have this special privilege. God's gonna, you know, he does, he loves his children, but at the same time, he's telling me he loves, he said it in his word, he loves the world. He loves the world that he gave his son for the entire world, like everybody on this earth right now. And I don't know if you were out on Thursday evening, like there was this amazing sunset, the clouds, right? And I was just actually sitting in my office, a home office, and actually I had my curtains closed, but somehow something prompted me um, to open the curtains. And I looked out, it was just red, it was like on fire. I was like even so excited that I broke a glass on my table. <laughs> I was like, James, oh no. Like, but anyway, like in that moment, God took me back to one of my favorite scriptures and favorite image in the Bible was when the veil was torn. When that moment when Jesus breathed his last and that veil was torn in the temple and nothing else separated us anymore from God. And that moment was like, yes, that is the gospel. That is, that is the purity of God's love for us. That He took that initiative. He tore that veil. And now we get to enter into his goodness. And it wasn't really because I had so much faith. It was his invitation. And I look back at scripture, look back at it's always him taking that initiative. Amen. And he's just simply asking us to respond. You know, whether you, you think you have faith or not, but just, just yes. So whether you're a believer for um, however long years or you're just beginning and you have that inkling in your heart and you're like, I don't know what this is. Let me tell you, it is God inviting you into this relationship with him, you know, and, you know, he's not there weighing how much faith you have right now, but I encourage you, just don't push that inkling away, or even if you've been a believer for a long time like me, and you have that inkling, it's still God is every day, daily, just inviting us, you know, to him, and I think that's just so beautiful, and so for me, the uh, God doesn't respond to faith is for me, it was like uh, unlocking. It's a, a freedom, a release. You know, maybe it sounds controversial still. <laughs> I don't know. But for me, especially, I think that's just something that God's been, you know, um, sh you know, imparting in my heart and something I want to just impart or, or just share with, with those, all of us that um, yeah, daily just, yeah, just know that God is God loves us so much, and he's always taking that initiative to, to be with you and to have that relationship. Um, so, yeah, so that's <laughs> my share. <sharing. laughs> so. I just feel a, a presence coming. I wonder if you would just pray for us, just agree in prayer with mm -hmm. us as we pray too with, with Carmen, that we receive more of that yeah. uh, consciousness mm -hmm. about his goodness. Yeah, Father, I just, we just praise you for who you are, Lord. And we thank you that you, since the beginning, you took the initiative towards us. 
even when we, when we, even when we don't take the initiative, when we, or we don't have the strength, Lord, sometimes, God, you are so patient. You are there, and you're just waiting for us, or just sitting with us uh, in our struggles and in our uh, asking and in our questions and all of that, Lord, all of those things. Yet you are always there. That was your promise that you never abandon or forsaken us. So, Lord, I just pray um, for each of us um, that we'll have that greater awareness and revelation of just your presence, of your love for us, Lord. Yeah, Lord, we just thank you for your spirit that lives in us, that is taking that initiative towards us. And, Lord, expand our hearts to you, towards you, Lord. Yeah, thank you that we just have to reach out to you and say yes. So, Father, I bless this family, I bless this church, I bless everyone here, Lord. Um, yeah, that daily they would just know um, your goodness in our lives. Yeah. And it's not our goodness that changes your goodness. It doesn't. Your goodness is constant. Your love is really unconditional. <laughs> and sometimes we, we, it really is too good to be true. But that is the good news that you've given us and the truth. Um, so we thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 Wow. Amen. God doesn't respond to faith because faith is our response to him. It's a simple Yes. Faith is not a work. Faith is a receipt. And you can see the fruit of someone who's been in the church much longer than any of us. <laughs> but do you notice the shift that happens in someone's life when they go from using faith to work towards God and understanding that faith is a receipt of His work towards us? There's a presence. There's a peace. Carmen is not particularly special or anointed or gifted hey. like A. <laughs> Good answer. She is special and anointed and gifted, but not more than any one of us. She, we are all exactly the same. And yet, did you notice the peace in her voice and the authority with which she spoke? Do you notice the shift in the room? It's not because Carmen is so powerful. It's because the truth that she's speaking is so powerful. That same peace that Carmen is living in and getting promptings to open windows and see God's glory, or a little fragment of God's glory, is the same peace that we can live in when we understand it's not about us. It's about Him. Priscilla. Beautiful Priscilla, come and bless us. Really hard to follow up after that. <laughs> and uh, so, <laughs> pressure, but no pressure, no works, right? So, I know I'm not as eloquent as uh, Carmen, so I actually wrote down something just in case I go on rabbit trails. 
Um, so last week, I'm sure, you know, we t Sean spoke about faith and it unlocked a lot of things for a lot of us. And especially, you know, I heard a comment um, that a lot of us felt very touched by Bonnie's testimony when she shared about how just um, again, receiving that, you know, uh, that truth about God doesn't hold your sins against you and just receiving, um, you know, that righteousness and then healing comes. And, and she was talking about how, you know, she never felt good enough and she hated herself. And I, I just teared up at, at that because that's something that I struggle with still <laughs> sometimes, but growing up, I, I struggled a lot with, you know, just not feeling good enough. And, and I, I realized, you know, those voices of condemnation, um, you know, and not just your schoolwork or you, you don't feel as good as your peers you, in, in, I guess I was in school back then, or, or in, in work, like you're, you're always comparing yourself, you don't feel good enough, but also in our faith, in our relationship with God, you just feel like no matter how hard I try to live the Christian life, you know, I, I, I don't feel like I've done enough, you know, I don't feel like I've, um, you know, be good enough, and I've also grew up in the church, and and I know how we should act, how, what's the standard of being holy, you know, be holy as he is holy, you know, all that. Um, but, you know, God, Jesus is holy and kind and pure and humble. I'm reading my notes because I'm going on rabbit trails now. Um, and, but that imitation of Jesus supposedly had turned into a perfectionism um, and that has became a pattern in you know how I behave and in my relationship and I had a lot of feelings of just inadequacy and um, inferiority guilt and shame and feeling like an imposter which I still feel like now, <laughs> like standing here, like who am I wow. to say this? Have I got far enough that I can now wow. teach this to other people or, or tell other people this, you know? Have I done enough to prove this, you know? Um, and, and I find myself like the most toxic of perfectionism is that um, perfectionism holds you back. It, you know, you procrastinate, you don't do something because you feel like you can't do it well, or if you feel like you can't handle that person, you just turn away from that person and not deal with them, right? And I find myself sometimes doing that to God because I don't feel good enough in front of God. And and, and yeah, I mean, I obviously still struggle with it. There's still another layer of knowing our identity, knowing that I don't have to earn and deserve his love and his, who I am in front of him. And, 
and this week as I'm just thinking and meditating, and I, I realized um, what that was. I realized there's a perversion of identity, of you know, being a son and daughter that you naturally reflect the image of your father, and that has perverted into a pattern of perfectionism that you feel like you have to do things to be good enough, to, wow. to be worthy to represent God. And the, there's just, yeah, I just feel like it's like what Sean said a few weeks. There's a subtle perversion in what's seemingly good, you know, I, you know, experienced Christian, mature Christian, you know, the good girl, you know, on the outside, you know, people see me and say, no, you're great, and all that, but inside you, you don't feel that way. You feel not good enough. Um, and, and yeah, just that perversion of spirit of excellence from being to just needing to do things um, for perfectionism. Yeah, and, and as I'm reading the scripture this week, and there's this scripture that just, as I read it, I just tear up, and I'll read it to you. It's in Romans 8.15. It says, you did not receive the spirit of religious duty, leading you back into the fear of never being good enough. And you have received the spirit of full acceptance, enfolding you into the family of God, and you will never feel orphaned as he raises, rises up within us and, um, um, and our spirit join him in saying the words of tender affection, beloved father or Abba father. So yeah, like, um, in the beginning of this year, um, I was praying for direction, and I saw a picture of just a little young kid on the beach holding some balloons and just running to his father to show his father, hey, dad, look at my balloons. And I actually got the picture and put it on my screen. That was what I saw in a vision. And last two weeks in ministry time, I had that same feeling of when ministry time, when the presence came, I just felt like there is that shift back to a childlikeness, back to a simple faith where you just say, God, you know, I just run to you. I don't have to care what I've done. I don't care what I look like. I don't care, need to care because he sees me as perfect. Because as Sean was speaking to me this week, in New Testament, perfection is what Jesus has done for us. It's through Jesus. is not through our own works. It's already been done. So we don't have to do anything to prop it up. Um, we don't have to do anything to earn and deserve. But again, in line with what Carmen just said, just receive um, that favor that he has already given us and just 
another layer of peeling back that sting of condemnation and just instead of turning away from God, we can freely turn towards God in whatever we do. So, yeah. Yeah, Father, we just, we just thank you for peeling back the layers and the blinders on our eyes that removing another layer of that sting of condemnation that is in our soul, not in our spirit that's perfect, but in our soul and our emotions that we still feel not good enough. But Father, that's not the truth. So Lord, we just, we say we embrace your truth. We embrace the favor you've, you know, bestowed upon us. We embrace who you call us um, as we are your sons and daughters, Lord. So, Father, we just turn towards you and we turn to you and say, thank you that we are adopted in you. Thank you that we are sons and daughters. Thank you that we can just boldly and freely receive from you and, and run towards you. And, Lord, we just step in to our identity, God, of just being your son and daughter. We just step into that healing. We just step into that favor. We just step into that change and that shift and that, that new beginning that you have for us, Lord. We just step into the goodness you have for us, Lord. So Lord, thank you for what you are doing in me and in us, Lord, in Jesus' name. You can be invited to the greatest party with the greatest spread, all the gifts, you know, the sort of party where they give you gifts for coming. And there's a chance that you won't enjoy that party because you don't feel like you're invited. And that's the state of most Christians. I've felt that this is what Priscilla's testimony is. She's been invited to this beautiful spread She's going, am I accepted? But she's got the invitation. Can I take this piece of cheesecake or not? Could I take another slice? I'm not sure I'm allowed. What righteousness does is exposes the lies of legalism. And it addresses you as sons. And says, not only are you invited to this party, but this is your party. This party wouldn't exist without you. You don't get an invitation to the party. You are the living, breathing party. I do not celebrate... As I get older, I'm almost 40, Carmen. <laughs> I don't celebrate birth birthdays as much. As, as the more birthdays you have, the less special they become. <laughs> I don't need to celebrate birthday parties. I, don't, I just don't care that much. But when my son... Now I want to celebrate birthday parties. 
Little clue about righteousness in there. Righteousness is not about you. Righteousness is about him. And his joy and his pleasure. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, you cannot please God without faith. When you approach the table that's set before you and you say yes, that righteousness is God going, they're enjoying what I did for them. Pleases God. You're not pleasing him because you've done enough and you've worked hard enough and you've studied enough and you've been a Christian long enough. No, it's just because you're his son. You're just his daughter. And as you partake of his goodness, he's so pleased. Little Sammy's a little tyrant, a little terrorist in the making. <laughs> he's a tax on us. He's expensive. He's a pain. We didn't sleep for the last two years. He is not a productive member of society. <laughs> He breaks everything. The other morning, he's got crayons all over the wall. <laughs> I right now have uh, uh, pen marks all over my leg that I try to wash off I can't get off. He is, in all intents and purposes, by the measure of perfection, useless. And I would die for him in a moment. And yet we approach God thinking that we have to have clean walls and we have to have produced enough and prayed enough and confessed enough and not sinned enough. And yet this useless human being who loves his son so much is a poor little shadow of a smudgy reflection of how good God is. And we think God is a very angry judge who's going to beat us and expect perfection. And it's just not true. Let me say, God has not invited you to the party. You are the party. Amen. And he is just that good. Just turn to your neighbor and say, man, my God is good. Man, he's good. I'm, I'm not sure if I should even preach. I feel like we've been fed so much. It's worship. <laughs> yeah, we are worshiping. You know, when truth comes, that, that, that is, you can't worship God without spirit. We are worshiping. The more truth you live in, the more you're able to worship. That's why most churches will play three fast songs and three slow songs. It's not because it doesn't work. It's because... It does work that they do that formula. And the reason they employ that formula is because you need three fast songs to take the emphasis off you and sort of shift it slightly towards Jesus. And then as it's shifted towards Jesus, now they can transition from three fast songs, which we call praise, into some more worshipful stuff where you can receive from, good and you could, from God and you can admire his goodness. Have you noticed we didn't play three fast songs this morning? <laughs> Because we have got a foundation for, many dec for two decades, and, and we have focused on what God is able to do for us. And so we're not working towards Him, and so we can shift into that place of worship because of the truth that is being embedded and will continue to be embedded in us. 
You don't have to work towards God. He has already worked towards you. You don't have to have use your faith to get God to get. No, your faith is a response to him already approaching you. Yes, we take hold of that which has already taken hold of us. That means God's already got you. Alan, let me get you. Put your arm out. That means God's already got you. Now he can choose to ignore the party or he can hold on to me. Now he's taken hold of that which is already taken hold on him. Okay. I'm going to chop my preach in half. I'm going to preach the second half. Let's see how we go. Righteousness is by faith and by faith alone. It does not come by legalistic attempts, obligations to observe a moral law. It is good to be moral. Don't go around shooting people. That's good advice. But that's not what the gospel is about. The gospel has nothing to do with whether you murder something or not. The gospel has everything to do with whether you were murdered or not by the law. And then once you die to the law, you become alive to God. And so our righteousness is a part separated from the law. So we may say yes as a six-year-old. That doesn't mean now we go back to something that we died to to try and make ourselves holy. The same faith process that says yes as a six-year-old is the same faith process throughout our whole Christian lives. Don't go back to observing religious rituals, trying to be perfected, trying to be good enough. Because whilst you were still dead in your sins, whilst you were still an enemy of God in your mind, and the futility of your thinking, and the hardening of your heart, that is all scripture in Ephesians. Whilst you were still in that state, Jesus died for you. So if now that you've died to the law, and he's raised you up to life, and the life he lives, he now lives, or the life we live, we now live through him. That state is better than before. You don't need to go back to an old way to try and become righteous. There's implications to that that affect our behavior and our daily lives. It affects how we pray. It affects how we pray for ourselves, but also how we pray for healing and miracles for other people. It affects how we read the word. It affects how we handle failure. Because you can't tell the difference between a real champion and an accidental champion until they've handled failure and you see how they get back up again. Most Christians inherit a champion nature from God and they hit one failure and it proves that their mindset has not shifted to in line with their righteousness and they get depressed. They feel defeated. But you can't defeat Jesus. So somebody who's operating in righteousness can experience a moral failure, an external failure, and still get up afterwards. Because they've shifted their foundation from what they're able to do to what God's able to do. So a righteousness is available that is a part of from the law. It's got nothing to do with a moral legalistic attempt. It's got nothing to do with observing uh, feasts and special days and certain calendars and a list of 623 rules. It's got nothing to do with that. It's got nothing to do with Aristotle and Confucius and Einstein. It's got nothing to do with them. Certainly got nothing to do with Moses. 
Because we think Moses is better than Aristotle. And he was. But he's not better than Jesus. So there's a righteousness that's available apart from the law, apart from human effort, apart from you. Okay. Let's put... And we approach the Bible, the good book, and we look at some of the words that Jesus said, and we look at some of the things that the writers of the New Covenant said, and we say, we see a works mentality. We see something that actually looks very similar to the legalistic righteousness that comes by the law. And we see, oh, Jesus said, you must be holy as I am holy. You must be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. And we apply an old covenant mindset to the words that are being stated to do with the new covenant. Or we misunderstand what covenant Jesus was speaking from. Now I want to illustrate this with a stupid little story to try and get people to hang on to something because it's very hard to understand some of the Bible sometimes unless you have this context. When I was 15, mobile phones came out. Do you guys remember the Nokia 3310? The brick phone that everyone had? It had snake on it and I'm sure we all spent many, many hours trying to eat that little apple and swearing and because <laughs> you keep on hitting your own tail and isn't it funny that kids these days actually probably all of us shorten our messages to weird weird little an anagrams are they anagrams what's the short little words be right back brb like you have to use google to understand what the kids are saying and in those days i'm sure you'll remember when we sent text messages they cost a lot of money so you had to shorten your messages, <laughs> otherwise you got in all sorts of bills. Mom would get angry with you for spending all her money. You send like, you make sure it's 160 characters and no more. You wonder where Twitter got its thing from. Now, nowadays, messages are free and people still shorten their messages. But in those old days, my mom gave me this phone, the first phone, and she would send me a message. And she would say, Sean, make sure you are home. HME by 7 p.m. because we're going to have dinner together. And I would receive this message on my mobile phone and I would know what the right thing to do was. Don't stay playing computer games with my friends. I had to be home by 7 p.m. Now, how many think that is a bad idea? Do you think that's a bad message? I'm a 15 year old. Do you think my mom was wrong by sending me that message? No, she's absolutely right. She is my guardian. I'm entrusted to her by God. I'm entrusted to her. And she is giving me good advice. And not just good advice. She is giving me a law. Get home by seven. <laughs> and it was right for me to obey that law. It was a good thing. Now imagine you took that same phone. 20 years on. And opened it up and dusted it off. And somehow got it to charge. And you read that same message. That... Mom, rightfully so, perfectly, holy, sent to her son as a 15-year-old and said, get home by 7 o'clock. And then you turn to me and say, Sean, you need to get home by 7 o'clock or you're in big trouble. I have my own son now. You think my mom can tell me I need to be home by 7 o'clock? 
I'm a grown man. My mom doesn't tell me. Sometimes she does. But <laughs> I go, Mom, no. It is inappropriate to apply an old message to a new situation. It is absolutely inappropriate. It doesn't invalidate the old message because in that context, that was the right thing to do. And I should have obeyed it. And I should have tried my hardest. And when I didn't, my dad bent me over and gave me a good smack. That was the right thing. But in a new context, now as an adult, I do not have to obey that message anymore. In fact, if I'm trying to attempt to obey my mom's messages, which were for my good, they were perfect and holy, 20 years on in a new context, I'm going to mess up my current life because now I've got a wife who sends me messages <laughs> to come home and get back for 7 o'clock. And I would be dishonoring my, my wife by honoring something old. And I would be breaking my current situation, trying to honor something that was appropriate 20 years ago. When you read this book, Rob says it this way. He says, everything was written for you, but not everything was written to you. And so there, th there are some things that Jesus says in this book, and there are some concepts that are right and holy and perfect like getting circumcised. All the, all the men say, ow! That was the right thing to do under the law. But now that we have died to the law, if you try and attain righteousness by getting circumcised, you're applying an old message to a new situation. You're going to mess up your life. When did the new situation happen in the Bible? I've said this before, Rob has said this many times. Did it happen on page one of the New Covenant, what we call the New Covenant? Matthew 1, verse 1. Is that when the New Covenant started? Because that's what your Bible heading says. It says Old Covenant starts with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and then the New Covenant starts in Matthew. Is that when the New Covenant started? The New Covenant starts in Acts 2. So when Jesus is speaking in the Gospels, he is not always talking from a new covenant perspective. Sometimes he is speaking to an old covenant generation. And he's saying, your righteousness to, needs to exceed that of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. If we read that old message and go, okay, well, I need to have a righteousness that exceeds the guys who were trying really, really, really hard. You don't understand what Jesus was saying. So you need to understand the gospel in its clarity as a foundation because if you don't like i said a couple weeks ago you're going to see wild pigs with spikes coming out of their back and you're going to come up with some concoction some wild beast that looks very scary and puts you in fear and takes you out of sonship because you're not understanding the covenants in their context when you see the gospel clearly you see it's a porcupine and you don't get afraid that bush pigs are now growing spines and going to kill you and your whole family. So every time you read the Bible and you feel fear, go, what am I missing on the gospel? What have I misapplied? What message have I received from the past that now I'm applying? Very, very important. Because it's very easy to get tangled up in the old covenant. We're going to read that in a second. One scripture today. 
it is very easy to get burdened and weighed down in an old system of thinking. Everyone will identify this who's had a mother. Sometimes your mom, even as an adult, she'll say something to you. Your dad will say something to you. Your teacher will say something to you. And you will immediately obey because you're so used to and routined into listening to that authority figure. And then you find sometimes you, you find yourself in a position where you're like, why am I doing this? I don't even want to do this. I'm just doing it because so-and-so said, mommy said, preacher said, teacher said, I don't even want to do this. Because it's default, it's cultured, it is programmed into us to listen to those messages. If your phone now, if someone's phone now went ping, most of us would touch our pocket. We are programmed to listen to those messages. It is very easy to get it caught up. So you need to work really, 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 really hard. Hebrews 4. You need to work really hard to enter the rest of the new covenant. Because if you don't, if you're casual about the gospel, then you will drift back into fear very easily. You need to be clear about what righteousness is and what the gospel is. If you don't, you're going to come back under fear. You're going to start. You will say the law doesn't apply to us anymore because we died to live. You'll say all the right things, but in your habit and in your behavior and in your culture, you will work out of an old covenant place. And you will misappropriate what was holy and was perfect for a context. Get clarity on the gospel. And that's what we did three weeks ago, two weeks ago. We talked about what the gospel is. Okay, so. I want to read a... Yeah, I'm going to read Hebrews 1, uh, Hebrews 11. This is my favorite chapter in the Bible. I love talking about faith. Faith is my favorite topic. I just think it's so powerful. I'm so inspired by it. If I ever feel depression, if I ever feel angst, fear, this is the chapter that I go for. This, for me, has been a pillar in my life. And I don't think I'd be dead without it, but I'd be depressed. At the least, I'd be depressed without this chapter in the Bible. It has inspired me. It has made me see life where there was death. It has rescued our marriage. It has, it has, uh, uh, it has been the pinnacle of my existence in terms of theology. I love this chapter in the Bible. And I highly recommend that you read it and you get to know it. But if you don't understand the context of covenants, if you don't understand old messages, you're going to read this chapter with the wrong idea, and you're going to misappropriate the old covenant into a new covenant context. And I'm going to show you from this chapter on how not to do that. Okay, remember, the foundation for the series is God doesn't, yeah, you don't move towards God, God moves towards you. Your faith does not move God. God has already moved. Your faith is a response to his moving. Yeah. Hebrews 11 verse 1. Let's read it together. Now faith is the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. I prefer the version where it says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. This is what the ancients were commended for. 
now faith. I love this. I can hear T.G. Jakes. I can hear Rob Rufus. I can hear <laughs> so many people in my mind talking about now faith. Now faith. Watch that word now. Now. There's something about a time zone and a period of time that's very important to understand when reading about faith. And this is going to make more sense as we go through some of these verses. But you can apply a now faith into your life, and you can apply a then faith into your life. And a then faith, it looks very different to a now faith. Because now faith is the substance of the things that previously we were hoping for. Once you have the substance of the thing that you were hoping for, you do no, no longer need that type of faith. Do you not need faith? No, you need faith. But your faith worked and your faith received the very thing you were hoping for. Now that you have it, now faith, you no longer need that faith. Faith is like a good doctor. He works himself out of a job. Faith is not like a doctor who tries to keep people sick so he can keep milking them for cash. Faith is like Dr. Lex who heals people so they no longer need him. Now faith is the substance of the things that we hope for. It actually brings in the very thing that we're hoping for. It brings into an existence. It's the evidence of the things we didn't see. Huh? The evidence of the things we didn't see. Okay, let's read the next verse. We're going to skip verses here because we're bringing out strands out of Scripture. Scripture is so rich and it's got such a rich tapestry of ideas and theologies and contexts that when you're reading it, sometimes you've got to ignore certain strands so you can focus on this strand. And then you reread it and focus on a different strand. And you see the tapestry throughout Scripture. Do not read Scripture religiously. I've said this before many times. Do not come to Scripture and just... Uh, 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 uh. Next verse. Duh, duh. No, cycle through over and over and over again. Read Hebrews 11 a hundred times. Then read Hebrews 10 and then 11 a hundred times. And then we're going to read verse, uh, chapter 12, the first two verses, a hundred times. Don't get religious about a hundred times, but read it so that you're getting clarity on these things. So we're skipping verse to verse 8. Read it together. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. He did not see, but he was going to go there. Now, faith is the evidence, the substance of things not yet seen. So here we have faith. By faith, Abraham went and obeyed. He didn't see it. He didn't know where he was going, but he went by faith. Isn't that what faith is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Except this is slightly an old message we're going to see in a moment. Verse 9. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents as did Isaac and Jacob, who were his heirs with him of the same promise. Now, when you read this the first 300 times, you think he just made, he lived in a tent because he hadn't yet set up shop, and at some point he would build himself a brick house and settle down. But that's not what this is saying. He lived in a tent, and his son and grandson lived in tents because, let's read the next verse. For he was looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder 
is God. Israel is the holy land. Abraham didn't even set up shop in Israel. He was looking forward. Everyone say looking forward. So there's a faith that looks forward. And then there's a now faith. A faith that looks forward to a city whose architect and builder is God. Abraham, by not setting up shop, by not building a house, by not having a foundation, was saying, according to the writer of Hebrews, that wasn't the promise. Israel was not the full promise. God said, I'd give you every step that you take, and he took those steps and God gave it to him. And there was a land that was promised, but talking about the promise in Romans 3 and Galatians 3, there's a different promise going on. There's something much greater than a chunk of land. And so when Abraham marched around what we now call Israel, he was looking forward to something whose architect and builder was God. He was looking forward to foundations that he didn't build. Let me say that again. Your faith does not attract God. He did not build something that attracted God. He proved he was waiting for something better by not building. Sounds a little like David. David said, God, let me build your house. God said, no, I'm going to build you a house. Whose throne does Jesus sit on? When you try and build something for God, and you try and found it, you're going to build the foundation. Are you really living in faith? Are you really looking forward to something that God is going to do? Or are you looking at you? David attempted to look at himself. And God said, David, let me help you along. Look at me. Let me build you something. And yeah, his son built him a house and that was raised. And Jesus walks along later on the third iteration of this smaller diminishing house and says, in three days, I'm going to, build the, I'm going to destroy this house. And three days later, I'll raise it up again. Because that was what man was able to do for God. And Jesus said, I don't recognize this. This is not how faith operates. I'm going to build you a house, Abraham. I'm going to build you a house, David. So Abraham was looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder is good. Next verse. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. If you twist faith and look at it from an old covenant perspective, you are not going to receive the things promised. Because that's the faith that they lived by and they didn't receive the things promised. Even though they received their dead back, their children back from the dead, and they received land, they didn't receive the very thing that was promised. They just got some other stuff. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. Remember, looking ahead. Admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. I promise you this is going somewhere. I can see people thinking, what are you talking about? <laughs> you can approach faith with the wrong mindset and it becomes this perverted creature that you think you need to do. 
But when you approach faith from the right angle, from the right place, it is something that is beautiful and amazing and will deliver the substance of the very thing that you're hoping for. It'll make you certain and make you sure. So when you read my favorite, vote, my favorite chapter with the wrong goggles, with the wrong mindset, with the wrong perspectives, you're going to think you have to do something. By faith, Noah saved his family. You're going to have to build a boat. You're going to have to bring the rain. When you understand that even these guys who performed great things and saw great miracles, they were still looking forward to something else. And they proved by the way that they lived that what they were doing was not permanent because they were strangers and sojourners, journeymen on the planet. They never set up shop on this type of faith because they were looking ahead to something better. So if we look back and go, that's the pinnacle, the heroes of the faith, and they are heroes. But if we look back and say, that's the pinnacle, our faith will be deformed. It will be perverted and limited. Because these guys weren't looking at their faith. They were looking ahead. Let's see what that is. Next verse. Uh, people who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. Next verse. For if they had been thinking the country they had left, they would have had an opportunity to learn, uh, to, to leave. They knew at the time what they were doing was limited. Even at the time. Because if they were thinking that this was it, they would have not continued looking for another country. They would have had an opportunity. It's not like they didn't have an opportunity. So the writer's doubling down and saying, these guys didn't say that this was it. This was the pinnacle of faith. This was just a starting point. They were trying to get somewhere else. Next verse. Instead, they were looking for a longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he, for he has prepared. Who prepared it? David? Abraham? Moses prepared a house. Man tries to do things for God all the time. But do you know what takes away your shame? It's when God prepares something for you. Next verse. Skipping a lot. Verse 39 says, These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. If you think that's the pinnacle, you're not going to get the thing that was promised. Even though they got all their stuff. They got stuff, but they didn't get the promise. Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. What? They lived in faith. They did amazing things. And yet... They didn't receive the promise. By all these faith, Noah, by faith, Abraham, Moses, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. That, by faith, didn't receive what was promised. And yet Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. Well, they didn't receive what they were hoping for. They all died not receiving what they were hoping for. So that only together with us would they be made perfect. What's so special about you that Abraham is waiting for you? Nothing. 
He's our father. And we are a fulfillment of a promise that was made to Abraham about having an inheritance in the nations. But it's got nothing to do with us. Sean, how can you say that? Next verse is going to be the next chapter. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, who are the great cloud of witnesses? Is it your grandmother in a cloud that's looking at you every time you sin? Because I used to think that. Or is the cloud of witnesses all the heroes of faith that were just mentioned? Anyone who operated by faith. Oh, Lord Jesus, please help me. I'm not trying to be controversial. I really am not trying to be controversial. But the truth is the truth. So what I'm going to say in the next couple of minutes, I'm not trying to be provocative. I'm just going to say the truth as I see it. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. We're talking about faith. We're talking about amazing works that people performed. And all of a sudden, a verse out of nowhere starts talking about sin. And I'm not sure how many messages you've heard on this, but I guarantee you, even this morning around the world, there will be preachers who use Hebrews 12 verse 1 to talk about throw off the sin that so easily entangles. But read the verse in context. What is the sin that so easily entangles? What is the thing that is so seductive that it messes you up and messes your race up? And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. What's going to stop you running your race? Is it adultery? Is adultery that good that it easily entangles? I know a lot of marriages ended in divorce. But it's not always the fact that someone committed adultery. Adultery is usually a fruit of something much deeper. Is adultery that seductive that it easily entangles? Not really. Is it lying? You know, some, for some people lying is a thing, but for a lot of people they're just straight... They don't have to lie all the time. What is the sin that so easily entangles? It's the sin of trying to live by a perverted, diminished, dwarfed faith. A faith that looks ahead to something better as if that is the pinnacle. Because that, that faith in the Old Covenant confirms something better that came at a later point in time. But we look back and think, that message that my mom told me, I have to come home for seven, that's the pinnacle, I have to go home at seven now. That's what so easily entangles, because it's so obvious and so true, and it was right in that context. So we look at the heroes in faith and say, I've got to have a faith that looks like their faith. And that's what catches you. I've got to act like Noah. I've got to act like Abraham. I've got to act like all these people. And they were proving that the way they acted couldn't receive, just yet, couldn't receive what was coming. They were sojourners on the earth. They didn't put any foundations down because they hadn't received. And they couldn't receive. By the time they died, they couldn't receive what was coming. That's the sin that so easily Entangles. When we look back at those old messages and we go, that's the way I must live. We limit what God is able to do in our lives. 
It's going to make sense in a second. This sin is not a moral sin. It's not not committing adultery or not lying or not stealing. That's not the sin that so easily entangles. It's the sin of living by some perverted faith that the people who really operated by faith said, this is not it. This is not the end goal. And then it says, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. That means they were running a different race. And we want to leave our race. I'm not talking about racial, like Chinese and Western. <laughs> I'm talking about a, a running race, a marathon. We want to leave our race to go and run that race. And those guys were proving they, they weren't running a race. They could get the prize. So what's the sin? It's living by an old covenant mindset. It's living by a legalistic mindset, observing the festivals and the ceremonies and the sacrifices that they used to observe that was appropriate and holy and perfect for them, but not for us. We've got to run a race that's for us. And it says in, in Romans, it says the law and the prophets testify. They were the law and the prophets. They testified that they weren't it, that something else was it. They agree about a new message. And yet we go back to the law and the prophets and we go, that's how we must live. And yet they were saying, hey, this is not how you should live. You should live something, something that looks forward in the future. You should live in now faith, not in an old faith. There's something stinky about trying to, people trying to operate in faith. Faith, I've got to have faith. I've got to, to have faith like Noah. I've got to have faith like Abraham. I've got to have faith like all these people when they don't understand what faith really looks like. Does that make sense? Well, what does that faith look like? Let's bring up the next verse. Looking unto Jesus, or fix your eyes onto Jesus. There's a faith in Hebrews 11 that was looking to an architect and a builder of a city that you, we didn't build, but that God built on our behalf. And so it's a faith that looks forward. Now, we no longer look forward. If you're trying to operate in a faith that looks forward, you're going to miss the whole point of the whole story because we shouldn't be looking forward. We should be looking at Jesus. So if you're trying to build up to the future, if you're trying to live a good life, if you're trying to do all these great things for Jesus, for God, you're going to build him a city. You're going to be the platform that somehow he's going to reach, reach the nations are, are on. You're missing now faith. Now faith says looking unto Jesus. He is the substance of the thing that we were hoping for. And if you keep on trying to run that old race, you're sinning. Not the sin, an immoral act of sinning. It's the sinning of missing out on what you're supposed to be aiming for, which is Jesus. Look at this. It says the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Another version says the author and completer of faith. That means he started the faith. And he finished the faith. Sounds like Romans 1 where it says from faith to faith. So when you think your faith moves towards God, you're missing out. You're sinning. When you think your faith shifts him, when you think he has to respond to your faith, you're sinning. Because you've taken the emphasis 
of Jesus, and you've put the emphasis on yourself. Let me say that again. I know people are thinking, and you, it's good that you're thinking. Now, what are you talking about, Sean? I've heard this chapter preached so many times, and the emphasis is put onto you. And you've got to have faith. I've 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 got to believe God. I've got to, another language is you've got to position yourself in faith. There's some elements in truth in a lot of that. There's elements in how Moses positioned himself and, and uh, 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 how Abel offered a better sacrifice and all of these good faith things. But when you put the emphasis on you having to do it, you've missed what they didn't miss because they knew that what they were doing wasn't good enough. They didn't set up shop and build a foundation. They couldn't. They died not receiving what had been promised. So they, the cloud of witnesses, are waiting for you and me to run our race. What's our race? Looking unto Jesus. Because that's what they were looking forward to as well. And so we look at these old covenant characters and we look at faith in an old covenant mindset and we try and rerun the race that they already ran. And we're missing it. I want to read, I, I know, you're going to have to meditate on that. I know, I can hear some pings, ping, ping, but I, but I also know I haven't hit the mark yet. I'm still sinning. <laughs> that's what, that's in the Greek, that's what sin means. It means you're aiming at a target and you miss. So I'm aiming at a target here. All, I, all I'm trying to do, my intention is to release people from a false burden of got to have faith into the freedom that Carmen and Priscilla stepped into at a greater degree so that you understand it's not about your faith. It's about his faith. It's about what he did. And the old confirms the new. And when you try and go back to the old without the confirmation of the new, you're missing out along with them, even though they saw it coming. You're not even agreeing that they're right. You're going back to an old covenant mindset, and you're disagreeing with the guys who were looking ahead. I find it so funny that people think the law is a good moral guide. No, the law was meant to kill you. They're going back to an old mindset. People who truly obeyed the law knew that they needed Jesus. They, need, they needed something else. They knew they couldn't inherit the promise through their own effort. And yet Christians somehow get deluded with just a touch of grace and a touch of God's goodness that they can somehow now manage to go back to the old thing and somehow they're going to make it in round two. No. If Abraham couldn't make it, if he died not seeing the full promise, how dare you even attempt it? You can't. Abraham was a great man of faith and he died not seeing the promise. So let me attempt to hit the target again. <laughs> That's fine. I can sweat. That's the, one of the advantages of being fat. You get a lot of blubber. You keep warm in winter, but you get hot in summer. Hebrews 12 verse uh, 1 in the Passion doesn't say it much differently to the way it says it in the New King James or NIV. But the footnote is fantastic. And so the footnote for, for 12 verse 1, I'm going to read to you. Uh, as for all of these, all of these great witnesses who encircled us like clouds, so we must let go of every wound that has pierced us and sin that so easily 
uh, that men so easily fall into. Let's run the marathon that's set up for us. So it says here in the footnote, or get rid of every arrow tip in us. By implication is carrying an arrow tip inside uh, a wound that weighs us down and keeps us from, out, uh, from running our race with freedom. So there's something in the original language there, Aramaic, that is implying you are unable to run your race because something has wounded you. What has wounded you? An old covenant understanding of faith, something that was so good and so holy and so pure, and we should commend and thank God for those people. But when you try and run their ways, it's like an arrow that wounds you. And then you can't run your race with freedom. The next little footnote says, or the sin that so cleverly entangles us. The Aramaic can be translated, the sin that is ready and waiting for us. If this is speaking of one sin, the context would point to the sin of unbelief and doubting God's promise. They didn't doubt God's promise, but they were looking ahead to it. So when they died, they knew there was something better that only together with us could we receive what was promised. What is that better? Bring up verse 1 again. Looking unto Jesus. 12 verse 1. Therefore, uh, uh, 2, sorry, sorry, Jay. Fixing our eyes or looking unto Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Let me say this again. Faith is one of the best things. It's one of my favorite topics. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. It's in that chapter of chapter 11. It is the most powerful concept. But if you think faith is an operation where somehow you learn like a Zen master, where you can do enough uh, 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 Tai Chi that you can move the energy fields... And then your faith can move things. Then you've misunderstood faith. If you think you can grow in faith. Then you've misunderstood what faith is. And you're going to misapply it. Faith. Is saying yes to God's promises. Anything else is sin. Not a moral sin just sin that tangles up it wounds you and it doesn't allow you to run the race with freedom the race of faith jesus changed the whole faith game so people actually approach faith in modern day christianity we approach faith so much of the time without jesus because we put the emphasis on what we're going to do and what we're going to believe to get the item that we want. And Hebrews 11 verse 1, and I've preached this personally. Now faith is the substance. So you've got to put your faith out there because that's the substance that brings you the car in. And there's something true around that. There's something true. But then we leverage that concept with our relationship with Jesus. And we think now faith will move him along. And it doesn't. And the old covenant confirms 
that it doesn't. They were looking better who, to a city whose architect was God and who was building foundations on their behalf. Faith does not move God. Faith responds to him moving on your behalf already. That's all faith is. Let me remind you again. The farmer who sowed seed and went to sleep. And whilst he was sleeping, he didn't even know how. He didn't even understand it. A crop grew. And we spend so much time trying to understand faith. I've spent years trying to understand faith. And faith is so simple. I know, Winnie, you'd be so proud of me to say that. <laughs> faith is so simple. But you don't, you don't even have to understand it. You just have to say, yes, God. Yes. That's all it is. Faith is yes. You don't have to have faith so that it becomes the substance of the thing that you want. No, that's not faith. Now faith is the substance already because Jesus did what he did on the cross on our behalf. He scorned the shame. And now he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. Now that's the faith that we live in. He authored the faith. He perfected it. And we just go in agreement with faith. We say, Amen. Yes. And we receive all the benefits of that faith. We don't plan the party. We don't arrange the party. We don't position the party. We don't get the banqueting table out and put all the drinks on and get special desserts and bake them and cook them. We don't bring anything to the table. We are the table that he brought to the party. <laughs> and maybe I'll explain that next week. But we are... <laughs> and every time you attempt to move God by your faith, you are losing the race, and you are wounded, and you do not have freedom. Let me remind you, faith does not move God. God has already moved to the cross. That's all it is. Very long message to say a very simple thing. You do not earn deserve. You do not pressure God. You do not manipulate him. You don't put the right amount of coins in the right sequence in the slot machine to get the jackpot. That's not how miracles work. That's not how righteousness work. Faith is a switch that says yes and you get immediately credited with all the righteousness that is available. Not because of looking at faith, but because of looking at Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, that you sent your Son. Because you knew that if you left us to our own devices, we were useless. We were useless. Father, we thank you for the law that you sent to convict the world of sin, to show the world how unrighteous we were. But we thank you that when you sent your Son, and we believe that he fulfilled the law, that we come into full righteousness apart from the law. We now receive by faith. The righteous will live by faith. 
not by working, not learning, not deserving, not by growing in faith, but by a faith receipt. Thank you, Father. I just pray for my brothers and sisters and for myself that this week we would not kind of come under a condemnation or a pressure or a guilt or a drivenness, but that we would have a release of God's rest in our lives. That we'd have such a clarity of what you're able to do, Father. That people would receive an abundance of life. Through the righteousness, abundance of peace. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did on the cross. Thank you for spilling your blood, not for yourself, but for us. And thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are the promised, the promised one. You are the promise that Abraham was looking for. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are dwelling in living temples, us. We thank you for the communion. We thank you that the curtain was ripped from top to bottom. Top to bottom, from God to man, not man to God. That whilst we couldn't tear that curtain, you tore it in an instant so that you could presence yourself with us. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you for that peace. And thank you for that freedom. Lord, I pray for every single person to run with freedom and joy this week in greater degrees. The race that is marked out for them. Yes, the race of faith, but that faith race being yes, yes, yes. Not a work, not an earning, not a deserving, but just a yes, a simple response to your goodness. Thank you, Father. Thank you. Thank you. When Jesus performed his first miracle, they'd run out of wine at a wedding. We all know it. And Jesus' mother comes to him and says, Jesus, we run out of wine. And Jesus says, woman, why do you involve me? What's that got to do with me? <laughs> Which is funny because it makes him look lazy or uh, <laughs> arrogant or refusing to help. But he wasn't at all. He was very humble. Why do you involve me? And then he says, for my time has not come. And that's how most of us approach Jesus when it comes to faith. We approach Jesus to do something like turn water into wine or to heal us or to deliver us or to bring peace or bring joy. And we're going, Jesus, here's a problem. Here's lack. Please do something. And then we call that faith. i got to have faith. So I'm going to approach Jesus and make my request known. And that's all scriptural and that's all good. But we think because we made the request that somehow it has to be answered. Because we're like a tantruming child that won't stop crying until we get what we want. That's what faith looks like for most Christians. And Jesus said, my time has not yet come. Because Jesus was looking ahead to a time where he did want to pour out wine. And he wasn't primarily concerned about a wedding with humanistic wine although he had no problem with that. 
he was primarily concerned about the spirit coming to the earth. And so when he was asked to turn water into wine, his consciousness must have been, Holy Spirit, I can't wait for you to be poured out on these people. I want the new wine, the fresh wine. I want everyone to experience your goodness. And then his mother comes along and drags him down <laughs> and says, hey, would you handle this little problem? And she approached with an old type of faith that wasn't looking ahead. And Jesus, so gracious and so loving, he did turn water into wine. And there is a poor little shadow of a reflection of what the new covenant is in that miracle. But Jesus was focused on the new wine of the new covenant, of his very blood. That's what he was concerned about. So do not approach Jesus like Mary did and say, Jesus, please, I've got a problem. Please, please, I've got a problem. Can you solve the problem? Can you pro I've got to have faith. I've got to have Jesus is not answering. Oh, please pray for me. Jesus is not answering. Oh, can you give me a word? Jesus is not answering. That's what faith looks like in the Christian world. Approach Jesus like Jesus would approach Jesus. Because you have the same righteousness as Jesus. Say, it's already been paid for. It's already been done. I've already poured out my spirit in Acts 2. Thank you that I've already received. That I don't have to have faith for you to go into the kitchen and cook something up. That you've already provided. And the faith just says, yes, I believe. Brings peace, brings rest, brings joy, brings freedom. And if you've suffered with that anxiety about faith, just release it and say, God, I don't want to live like that. I don't want to live under that cloud. I want to live out at a cloud of witnesses who witness what new covenant of faith looks like. I don't want to live out a dark cloud of condemnation that maybe I haven't prayed hard enough and I've got to work and earn deserve a miracle. I don't want to live like Mary, who then got in a pattern of bullying Jesus and eventually Jesus says, who was my mother and who was my brothers? <laughs> I want to live knowing that he's already spilled his blood, he's already poured out a new covenant blessing for us. Bless you guys. Wonderful. I hope you have a fantastic week, and we will see you tomorrow. Tomorrow? I'll see you tomorrow. Next week. Bless you.